The big idea of this passage is this, God joyfully produces repentance in all sinners who believe. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you and it's nice to see all the way to the back of the room. Praise the Lord that we can actually be gathered together when we gather together. I'm sure most of you are thankful you don't have to sit back there and stare at the wall. I don't know if it's an upgrade, but hopefully you feel that way. I'm glad you're here, and uh, it's great to be with you, to be able to worship together. Our passage is Luke chapter 15. Have you ever seen a picture that somebody maybe posts on their moments, and it looks like they're holding the sun? They stand just so, so that it looks like the sun is resting on their hand. It's a unique perspective from the camera that makes them look very big and the sun very small. Now we know the truth, the sun is huge. They are not bigger than the sun. But it's the perspective of the camera that makes it look that way. We had an experience with the perspective of the camera a few years ago when we purchased a toy online. We bought a kitchen set for our kids, and according to the picture, our kids should be able to stand at the kitchen set, cook food and wash dishes and those things. But when we received it, it was less than half the height we were expecting. Our kids, even though they were two or three, still had to squat down to be able to use this tiny kitchen set. But the perspective was, was off. We didn't understand. If we had been able to see it for what it really was, we would have known what we were getting or known what we weren't getting. So depending on where the viewer is, the perspective can make someone look bigger or smaller than what they really are. And this phenomenon is true with our view of God as well. If we have a poor perspective of God, if we don't understand Him and His Word well, we might think of Him as being smaller or less significant than what He really is. Our passage this morning is helpful because it puts into perspective God's sovereignty and His love for His people in a correct way, in the right light. We can see Him for who He truly is, that He really is sovereign, and that He really does love His people. Now, the passage today and next week talks a lot about repentance. And today we're going to see God's role in repentance, in the repentance of His people, His role, and what He does to bring people to repentance. So with this in mind, let's read our passage. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 to 10. Please follow along as I read. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, 
he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and diligently seek until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now the, the main point or the big idea of this passage is this. God joyfully produces repentance in all sinners who believe. It's helpful to start by looking at what is the situation? What's going on in this narrative as Jesus is telling these parables? Well, we know that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He has set his face to Jerusalem, it says in Luke 9. He's going there because he knows he's going to die. And that is his purpose and his mission, is to go to Jerusalem and to die for sinners. On the way, he's followed by crowds of people. Now, this crowd is made up of different types of people. There are some who believe in him, and they're following him because they believe. There are others who are there because they're curious about what he's saying, but they don't necessarily believe yet. And then there are some who hate him. And we see a mix of those people here. In verse 1, it says that the tax collectors and sinners were drawing near to hear him. This is that group of people who are curious. They're coming because he's saying some very interesting things, and they want to know more about what he's saying. And then verse 2 says, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes are those who hate Jesus. They hate his message. They hate what he's doing. They're looking for ways to trip him up, to make him look foolish. And really, they want to shut him up forever. And they're trying to figure out how to do that. And notice, they're grumbling. What are they saying? What is the complaint? Look there in verse 2. They're saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. They don't think it's right that Jesus should be receiving and eating with people who are considered sinners. These are known sinners. They start with, it starts with tax collectors. The tax collectors were known as traitors. These people worked for the oppressive Roman government instead of being loyal to their countrymen, the people of Israel. They were traitors. They were working for the enemy. We don't know what the others had done to be considered sinners, but we can tell that it's known, it's widely known, that these people were not living rightly, at least rightly according to the Jewish law. And yet, here's Jesus, a religious teacher. He's receiving them. He's accepting that they come to him, and he's also sharing a meal with them. He's giving them value, honor, by eating with them and sharing this meal. This was scandalous to the Pharisees and to the scribes. That's why the author tells us they're grumbling about it. And their statement is an accusation. They're saying he should not be doing this. He should not be receiving these people and eating with these people. 
that was important and helpful for us to pause for a moment and think, how do we judge people who come to Jesus? Do we assume that there are some people that are not worth our time or that are not worth God's time and his effort? Do we expect people to clean up what they're doing, to have certain morals before they come to church? Are we concerned with an unbeliever's lifestyle more than we're concerned with their heart? Where is our focus? Are we like the Pharisees who are saying, how could God want to save those people? Now, we want to look at how Jesus responded to this grumbling. We see at the starting in verse 4, we see that Jesus tells two parables, or one parable with two parts. These are, are parallel parables. And before we dive into those, I want to mention a few, a few words, a few guidelines about studying and looking at parables. Because we can get into trouble. There's a danger of misinterpreting or misapplying Jesus' message when we look at his parables. You know, a parable is, we treat a parable similar to a group photo. If you're in a group photo and the first time you see the photo, where do you look? What do you do first? You look at yourself, if you're like me. <laughs> How do I look? Do I look silly? Do I look just basically normal and okay, or how does this photo make me look? And then I look at everybody else. And a lot of times, that's what we do with parables as well. We read a parable, we want to know, where am I in this? How do I apply? Which part do I play in this parable or this story? And that's not necessarily bad or wrong, but we need to know that's our tendency to do that. And we want to try to look at what is the meaning of this parable? What is Jesus trying to communicate and then look at how do we fit into his message, into his meaning. How does that apply to us? So looking first at the meaning, and then looking at ourselves and how that fits, or how we fit into that. So we can look for the meaning in several ways. There's sometimes some parables that we see in Luke, like the parable of the soils, the different types of soils in Luke 8. Jesus explains it very clearly. After the parable, he then explains what he means. So we can tell the meaning because he explains it. Some parables stand alone, and we have to look at the context. Uh, we have to try to interpret what the, what the different parts are, or what's the focus of the parable to understand the meaning. And some parables, like the ones we look at today, there's some key words that cue, clue us into what the meaning is. Like in verse 7 and verse 10, it says, just so. This is, this is like saying, just as or in a similar way. So this gives us a clue as to what the meaning is. So we want to look at the meaning. And then lastly, last thing I'll say is that many parables have details that do not correspond to the real world. Not every detail in the parable corresponds to something in the real world. Such as we have the, in this parable, we have 10 silver coins. I don't know that it's significant that there's silver and not gold. Or this could have been 10 copper coins and not silver coins. Now maybe there's a deeper meaning to that. But when we look at the meaning as explained by Jesus, I don't think the, the type of metal uh, it corresponds to something in this world. So we want to be careful in how we interpret these to make sure that the, the things we make parallels with are what's intended by Jesus as he tells these parables. All right, 
enough guidelines. Let's dig into the parables and look at what does Jesus mean? What is his point in these parables? So we're going to take them parallel. Because they're parallel parables, we're going to look at them side by side and work through them that way. So we'll look at verse 4 and verse 8 together. And then we'll look at verse 5 to 6 and verse 9 together. And then verse 7 and verse 10, we'll take those together. So three points this morning, looking at the, par- the parables in parallel. 4 and 8, 5 to 6 and 9, and then 7 and 10. So the first one is verse 4 and verse 8, the introductory, uh, introduction to the parables. And here we see that God goes after and rescues His lost people. As point number one, God goes after and rescues His lost people. The parables start in verse 4. Look there at verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country, and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And then skip down to verse 8. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? So here we start with a man and a woman. And it seems like Jesus is connecting these, uh, the, the man and the woman to people in the crowd. Those who were listening to him would have been men and women. And so he's covering a a large cross-section of those who are listening. The men could could maybe relate to the the shepherd here. And the woman maybe could relate to the woman at the house with the the coins. This was probably a typical way of keeping savings rather than putting it in a bank, but keeping it at the house. So losing the coin would be very significant. And we see that both groups here... Both the man and the woman have lost something. They, they start with something, a group of 100 sheep, a group of 10 coins, and then they, lot, they lose one of them. One is missing. And notice what they do when they discover that the sheep or the coin is missing. It says the man, he, he readily leaves the other 99, and the passage says in the open country, and he goes after the one that is lost. So there's some risk involved in leaving the 99 in the open country. And he also takes some risk upon himself to expose himself to the open country, away from what's known in search of the sheep. The woman also, she immediately stops her work. She brings in light. She sweeps the house to seek diligently. It's costly for her. Lighting the lamp would spend lamp oil it would cost money. She sweeps and cleans every square centimeter of her house. This would take time to do. She could have been productive in other areas, but she's spending time searching her house. There's a cost involved in this search. Whatever either one of them had scheduled, it gets canceled. The lost sheep and the lost coin must be found. Now, the man and the woman in these parables represent God. And the sheep and the coin represent God's people, those people who are sinners but who will believe in Jesus. 
So we see from this that God goes after. He seeks diligently His people. We know from Scripture that God knows who His people are. And we see here that God is moving toward His people to find them. And then look with me at the end of verse 4 and the end of verse 8, how they end. It ends with, until he finds it. Verse 8 ends, until she finds it. So the man searches for the lost sheep until he finds it. The woman searches everywhere in her house until she finds the coin. And in the same way, this means in the same way, God searches and does not give up until he finds, until he has rescued all of his people. Like we saw in the passage from Ezekiel 34 that we read earlier, it's printed in your bulletin. God says that He will search for His lost sheep and He will rescue them. It's not saying He wants to, but He's saying He will. He's promising to find His lost sheep and to rescue them. Now, there will not be any of God's people who are left among the lost. So this means that that God, it's not unknown who God is going to save. He knows who His people are, and He will rescue all of them. None of God's people will be left as unbelievers. We see in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, All that the Father has given me, excuse me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And Paul says something similar in Romans 8. He says, those whom God predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. This is showing that God, those whom God predestined, He also called. And the called will respond. They will be justified. And there's many more scriptures also that points to God's work of saving and rescuing His people out of the curse of sin and death. And we know that He is successful in rescuing all His people. Now, there will be some who do not believe. There will be people who do not believe in Jesus. But all of those who are God's people will believe. And we can see that from this parable here. So what should we do with this? Well, all of us should recognize that God is the one who pursues His people. He is the one moving toward them. It's not accurate for us to say, I found God. We don't, we don't find God. We might find a group of people to hang out with on Sunday mornings. We might find a new set of rules to try and follow. We might find religion. But God is the one who finds His people and brings them into a relationship with Him. It's not rules or religion that motivates us to meet on Sunday and to be here. It's a relationship with God. And He is the one who has brought us into relationship with Him by revealing Himself to us, by searching for us, like it says in this passage, going after us, seeking diligently and finding us. So God goes after and rescues His people. He moves towards them. It's not the other way around. We're not seeking a God who is far off. We have a God who comes near to us 
and makes himself known to us. So do you sing to God with that perspective? Do you think about God being a God who comes near and who seeks to find his people? Do you pray to God knowing that he's the one who's moving toward you? Do you read your Bible with the mindset remembering that the very words are God's words? Because, and we have them because he came to us. He sought us diligently to give us his word. Now let's continue to look further at these, at the parables. Let's look at how God not only comes after and rescues his people, but he delights in them too. Point number two is that God delights in his children. God delights in his children. We'll look at verses five to six and verse nine. Let's look at verse five there. Speaking of the the man who went out to find his sheep. And when he has found it, he says, excuse me, when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. And then look at nine, the woman who has found the coin. It says, and when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. For I found the coin that I had lost. We see that the man who lost the sheep, he finds the sheep and he immediately lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. This rejoicing is the emotion of a joyful heart. There is delight in him that he has found his sheep. The man is happy to have found the sheep. He doesn't scold her or tie a rope around her neck. He doesn't immediately make some yang ro chuar. No, he lifts the sheep up and carries her home rejoicing. He is happy. We see God's heart to search for and find his people. And that he's not doing it out of frustration. He's not walking to find us like, fine, you messed up again. He's not grumbling. No, he's doing it. And it's his delight to find his children. He searches diligently for them and then rejoices when they're found. Contrast that with verse 2. The Pharisees and scribes are grumbling that Jesus is receiving sinners. The Pharisees are opposite of the shepherd. The shepherd rejoices when the Pharisees grumble. So we know that God rejoices that sinners are received and that they would repent when the Pharisees are grumbling. Look also at the woman, at what she does. She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me. In the same way that the man goes home and says, Rejoice with me. She also calls her friends and neighbors and says, Rejoice with me. There's rejoicing. She throws a party because she's found the lost coin. So the shepherd is happy to find his lost sheep. The woman is happy to find her lost coin. And in the same way, God rejoices and is happy when at the salvation of his people. And we see that God goes to great lengths. He does a lot of, he goes to, he has gone to great lengths to save his people to rescue them and to bring them in. 
And because of that, and in the midst of that, he's rejoicing to do that. So we too should rejoice at the things that caused God to rejoice. We should pay attention when we see in the Bible God's emotion here, that that there's rejoicing that a sinner repents, that people are brought in, and we want to match that as well. We want to rejoice at the things that God rejoices at. Do you rejoice when someone becomes a Christian? How might we do that? How can we cultivate the, the desire, the feeling of rejoicing when someone becomes a Christian? A few ways we can do that is to, to be praying for lost people. Pray that people would come to a knowledge and a faith in Jesus. Also giving of money and time to missions and evangelistic work. When we give, especially of our money, there's, there's a part of us that is invested, not just financially, but our heart is invested as well. That helps us then to rejoice when we find out that people are becoming Christians through that work that we were able to fund and pray for. That's one way to cultivate a rejoicing at becoming a Christian. Excuse me, rejoicing when people become Christians. Rejoicing when the lost are brought into God's fold, that they are brought into God's family. And finally, we should ask God to give us a heart that rejoices with Him, that He would help us to be like Him in rejoicing when people are brought in. Now, the last point for this morning, point number three. God produces repentance. God produces repentance. We'll look at verse 7 and verse 10. Verse 7, at the conclusion of talking about the man who found the sheep, Jesus says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And then verse 10, it says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So similar to what we just talked about, the angels in heaven rejoice with God at seeing sinners repent. The joy that God has at seeing sinners repent overflows into joy for the angels and all those who are in heaven. But notice where the joy is focused. What is the joy focused on in both verse 10 and verse 7? There's joy over one sinner who repents, it says in verse 10. And the same in verse 7, over one sinner who repents. So the joy is based on the sinner who repents. But let's think about how that matches with the parable. How does that line up? The lost sheep is completely lost. There's no indication that she could ever find her way back on her own. And she must be carried by the shepherd back to the fold. And we know a coin is not alive. It's just cold metal. It cannot do anything for itself, but there is joy over the sinner who repents. Do you see the almost the irony here is that If a sheep is helpless and a coin is lifeless, then so is the sinner, helpless 
lifeless on their own. But it seems that verse 7 and verse 10 are talking about rejoicing over the sinner in the sinner repenting. So if we just looked at verse 7 and verse 10, we would think the action is on the sinner. The one doing something is the sinner because they're rejoicing over the sinner who repents. But we see from the rest of the parable, where is the action? Who's doing something in the parable? It's the shepherd. It's the woman, which is pointing to God. God is the one who is active. He's the one who's doing something that produces the rejoicing. Do you see that? The repentance of a sinner depends on God's work, not the sinner's action or the sinner's work. God is the one who produces repentance. God is the one who initiates the movement. He moves toward the sinner. God is the one who carries the sinner all the way where they need to be, into God's family. God produces repentance. Now, maybe you have an objection to what I'm saying. You you may say, well, I chose to believe Jesus as my Savior. I wasn't forced against my will. I'm not a a brain-numb robot. I'm not a puppet on a string. And that's true, you're not. We're not puppets. We're not robots. We have wonderful minds that God has given us. But the Bible is consistent in saying that we are so far into sin. Sin has caused us to lose any capacity of finding our way back to God. We are dead spiritually. We love sin too much. And on our own, we cannot change our minds. We cannot change our will. We cannot change our desire. We are completely without hope on our own. We can't even think about our need to be saved without God creating that, without God giving us that thought, opening our eyes to see that we are sinners. This is so clearly shown in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He talks about the helplessness that we have in our sin. But Ephesians 2, verse 4, But God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. It is God's grace that makes us alive together with Christ. He is the one who works repentance and salvation in us. It is God who is the the one that changes the believer. It's not the person believing. Anything good that we do, anything spiritually good, even thoughts that we have, any recognition of sin comes from God's Spirit working in us to allow us, to help us to see it. He's the one who works. 
Jesus says in John chapter 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. It's God's work to bring sinners to repentance. We also see in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He asks them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then again in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells the believers, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Paul's saying again here that it is God who works in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He changes our will. He changes our desires to match His, to be like His. But He's the one who changes us. He's the one who produces repentance. So God joyfully produces repentance in everyone who believes. God is joyful and He's the one producing it. That's the point of these parables, these parallel parables parables that we would see God is the one who produces repentance. So what do we do with this truth? How can we live it out before God? If we know that God joyfully produces repentance in all who believe, what do we do next? Well, I want to give us some application. I have five points of application. And before I begin those, I want to remind us of Philippians 2 that I just, that I just read, where Paul says to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So we are meant to work. We are not passive. We do work, but we work as God works in us. We work, but we are dependent on God to work in us. We work with His strength and His power, depending on His desire, not our own. So let's keep that in mind as we go through these applications. First is repent and believe. Repent and believe. Jesus says in Mark, the whole point of His mission is to is that people would repent and believe. But what is repentance? Repentance is first confessing to be a sinner. You must see that you are opposed to the holy God who created this world. You have rebelled against Him, and you do not measure up to His standard of holiness. Repentance starts with admitting to being a sinner. And then, not only admitting to being a sinner, but then turning to trust and follow God with your whole life. So there are two parts to repentance. Confessing to be a sinner, and then turning to God, and trusting and believing in Him as, a, as your Savior. So if you're not a Christian, then I challenge you, and I urge you, to repent and believe in Jesus for the salvation of your soul. Enter the new life 
that God gives as a gift, and He provides through the blood of Jesus. Now, you might be thinking that I just said repentance is God's work and not your own. And that's absolutely true. I did just say that. But does that mean we have no responsibility at all? Our only responsibility is to respond. When you see the truth of your sin and the truth that you need a Savior, then respond to the good news that Jesus is that Savior. Respond by repenting and believing in Him. The only reason that you have the opportunity to respond is because God has found you and carried you here. So take the opportunity. Do not delay. I'm confident that all those who are called by God's Spirit will repent. Secondly, the second application is for believers. We should continue to repent of our sin. When God saves us, He gives us a new heart. He gives us a new birth as His child. He justifies us, meaning He declares that we are righteous because Jesus died on the cross. However, we still have our sin nature. Our sin is not completely dead. We are dead to sin, but we still sin. We are now at war with our sin. Before we were born again, as Christians, we were sinners. We're defined by our our identity was as sinners. But now that God has saved us, we are at war with our old sinful self. And God is helping us, equipping us to go to war against sin. So we still sin, but we battle sin in our hearts. And part of that battling is repentance. So when we see that we have sinned, we also want to confess that it is sin. When we see sin in our lives, we want to go to God and say, that is sin, and it's evil. God, I know that what I did was sinful. And then we again say, Turn, turning to God, saying, please help me to not sin. Please give me victory over the temptation to this sin. So we must confess to God that our sin is evil and is wicked before Him and then ask for His help. Turn to Him in killing the sin and ask for His help to follow Him rightly. So we must continue to repent as believers. Now in just a few minutes, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Before we take the bread and the wine, though, I will lead us in a prayer of confession. We typically have a prayer of confession every service. And as I lead, I'm meant to represent all of us. And the prayer is also meant to be a model or an example. So listen to the prayers of confession that I make later and that we make in other services. And imitate that prayer in your own quiet time with the Lord. The key to the prayer is calling sin what it is, that it is evil and that it is against our holy and righteous God. And when we confess, then we turn to God. That's why we have a scriptural assurance of pardon. It's printed in the bulletin. There's a passage that reminds us that we are not lost to despair because of our sin, but God, through Christ, 
has saved us, and we can be sure of that because of His Word. So use that as a model as you repent to confess sin and then be assured of God's salvation through His Word. Thirdly, third application is to rejoice with God. Rejoice with God. I mentioned this briefly briefly earlier, but Christians, as we follow Christ, we must follow in His ways. But not only His ways, also His thinking. We want to be angry at the things that make God angry. We want to be sad at the things that make God sad. And we want to rejoice at the same things that make God rejoice. So we see that God rejoices over sinners who repent. And we also should rejoice over sinners who repent. We can see ourselves in the parables as those who are are friends and neighbors of the ones who have found their lost sheep or lost coin, gathered to celebrate that the lost is now found, and we want to do the same thing. One way we do this is by sharing and asking others to share their testimony with us, hearing about how they became believers, and responding with praise God for His work in your life. That is what it looks like to rejoice over the repentance of sinners. We also want to pray for our family, our lost family and friends, and pray with others for their lost family and friends. At our evening service last week, we prayed specifically for several friends and family who are not believers. And when God calls some of them, when He finds some of those specific people, and they repent and believe, we can all rejoice with them, with God, that they are believers. We got to be a part of God working to save them. And that's a reason to rejoice. Number four, we should receive all people with hope and the expectation of repentance. We can't forget the situation that Jesus is speaking into, the grumbling about His receiving and eating with sinners. Just as we want to rejoice with Christ, we also should receive others in the way that He received them, by not expecting them to change before He would talk to them. We should consider how warm we are to welcome new people to our church. Do we size them up? Do we think about where they're from or maybe what they could offer? Do we let their, the way they look or the way they speak determine whether we move toward them or not? We should consider this and model our lives and our acceptance of people in our church after Jesus. Now we know that as Jesus accepted these tax collectors and sinners, it was not so that they would stay the same. But we see that He's going to find them. He's looking for, He's going after His people. He's accepting them with the hope and the expectation that some of them would repent and believe. And we should do the same, accepting people here to church 
with the hope and the expectation and the desire that some, many, would repent and believe in Jesus. Finally this morning, we must worship God. Worship God for He produces repentance. It would not be appropriate to forget, to leave out that God is the focus of these parables. And we should respond by worshiping Him. We need to keep in the front of our minds and in our hearts that it all starts with God. He is the sovereign Lord. As it says in James chapter 1, verse 18, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits for His creation. He's the one who brought us forth. So any good thing that we might think or that we might do is worthless on our own. On our own, we're like the lost sheep or the lost coin, hopeless and helpless. God is the source and the supplier of any and all good that we might have or that we might experience. He is the one who has gifted us repentance. He came after us in the form of His Son, Jesus. Jesus carried our guilt and our shame on the cross. And He did that so that He could carry us into the fold of God, to be God's people. So all praise and glory and honor goes to God, our good shepherd, who produces repentance in us. Let's pray. God, we praise you for this wonderful gift of repentance that you have produced in those of us who believe. We pray that you would continue to work, that you would draw people to you. And we pray that those who are not believers here today, that you would bring them to repentance as only you can do, Lord. We worship you this morning, as we should every moment, for you are the sovereign God and our loving Father. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.